Welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom. My name is Helen Mully, and the author joining you in your classroom for this episode is Robin Stevens. Now, when she was little, Robin wanted to write books about the zoo she dreamt of owning. But that was before she discovered crime fiction and her obsession with the grisly subject of murder began. She's now best known for her Murder Most Unladylike series, in which the central characters, Daisy and Hazel, find themselves caught up in a succession of murder mystery plots. The books take place in a boarding school, um, a setting that I think draws on Robin's own childhood experience of living away from home, which she says was like having a never-ending sleepover with her best friends. It struck her too early on, perhaps a little bit worryingly, that boarding school was the perfect place to stage a murder mystery. She says the first thing any aspiring crime writer needs to do is plan their crime. The moment it happened, who did it and why. That way, she says, you have control of the story. So, Robin, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the classroom. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Helen. It's our pleasure. Now, I've been reading your Murder Most Unladylike series since it first started back in 2014. And I believe you're now on to, well, we'll talk a bit more about book nine later, but you're about to publish the ninth book in the series. Yes, the ninth and final book is coming out in August this year. Very exciting. The final book. I'm not going to ask for any spoilers, but no. does that mean we're looking at a big denouement there? You'll have to see, but I'm really hoping that fans of this series uh, will think that it's a fitting end to Daisy and Hazel's adventures. And just before that is launched, we've got World Book Day coming up, and I believe you've got something quite exciting to tell us about that. Yes, uh, I am lucky enough to be one of the authors chosen to write this year's 2020s uh, World Book Day books. And my short story, The Case of the Drowned Pearl, is coming out uh, for World Book Day this year. And it stars Daisy and Hazel and their friends Alexander and George solving a murder on the seafront. Oh, I'm sure we'll all be looking forward to that. So here we are in the virtual classroom. Do you go into schools a lot? I do. Uh, I do a tour for each of my new books. Uh, I do a whirlwind visit to about 10 schools in one week. Uh, it's very exciting uh, and it's one of my most favorite things to do. Uh, I love meeting fans of my works. I love meeting kids uh, who are interested in writing themselves, who love reading. It's just the best way to connect with my readers. It must be amazing for you as an author to see your books in children's hands and to see them reading them because we know readers are the most important people in this yeah. process. So so to see that happening must be really quite it's, amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, I actually um, don't, almost never have I seen a kid just out in the world reading my books, but all my friends do. I don't know how this happens, <laughs> um, but I'm always getting, you know, texts from my friends saying, I've seen one of a uh, kid reading one of your books. Uh, they're so interested in it, um, but I've only seen it, I think, once. I saw a little girl holding Jolly Foul Play and I sort of followed her down the street. Cause I was Did so you run excited. up to her and speak to her? <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't want to sort of bother her, but it was just with holding my book. It was so exciting. <laughs> what about when you were at school, what was your writing like when you were at school? Uh, my writing was actually quite fantasy-based when I was at school. I was a big fan of Terry Pratchett and Dinah Wynne-Jones and 
Paul Stewart and Chris Riddell's The Edge Chronicles. And I made up all of my own sort of fantasy worlds and all of my characters were, you know, dragons and werewolves and vampires and stuff. Um, but they did usually go to boarding schools, like as I was at the time. Um, and uh, they had sort of mystery adventures together. So I think I had the mystery thing really early on as well. Well, they do say write about what you know, don't they? And, and especially when you're young, you, you can't write anything else really. Um, so imagine you're sitting down to write and in front of you is a blank page or a blank screen. What goes through your mind at that point? So when I plan, I generally start off with a notebook and a, that I carry around the whole time and I write, you know, sort of ideas and, um, and little character snippets and stuff into that. But when I sit down to actually write my books, once I've done my plan, I write on my laptop. Um, and looking at a blank page, I think is one of my least favorite things to do. <laughs> um, the thing that always comes into my head when I see one is the phrase, you can't edit a blank page, uh, which somebody very wise told me. And um, I have really held on to that. I find having ideas very easy and fun for books. I'm always coming up with new plots, new characters. But then the actual writing of the first draft, I find quite difficult because it's taking all of those wonderful thoughts and ideas in your head and putting them down on the page. And it it always feels so thin. It always sort of feels like I'm not conveying the depth of emotion, the, the depth of um, you know description that I want to have. And it takes until sort of the second or third draft to really feel like the book on the page is the way it is in my head. Um, so yeah, I struggle, I think, with the first draft and I just want to get it out, finish it, and then I can go back and make it the story that I really want to tell. And that's what I'm doing at the moment with, with book nine. I wrote the first draft and it was really thin and vague and it just wasn't working. And then I went back and I edited it and suddenly things are working and characters feel like real people and I can see um, the setting in my head and it's all about that transition between the blank page to editing words I've already written it's very important I think that is really important and I think that everyone who is listening to this especially the young people listening to this will find that immensely reassuring because no one gets blank pieces of paper put in front of them and told to fill them up with brilliant words yeah. as often as children yeah. at school. So to, so to hear that someone who is a successful author like yourself, who's, who's published all of these books, still feels that same feeling is going to be really reassuring. Any tips you've got to help get those words down on the page would be really helpful. I mean, one of the reasons that I think especially when I was younger, I would be really paralyzed by the blank pages that I had so many ideas and it was hard to winnow them down. And I think I talked to a lot of children who say, um, who think they're not creative or, or they're not good writers because they're just sitting there with all these ideas and nothing goes on the page because they have 27 brilliant stories in their head at once. Um, and I think that's all about training yourself to focus in on an idea and knowing that it doesn't matter which one you choose, just choose an idea and go with it. Like when I am planning my books, I could be paralyzed by thinking all the different methods of, of murder and all the different suspects <laughs> and all the different victims. But because I sit down and I write down what I want my crime to be, it's there on the page. And even if I'm like, oh, I want to change it to suddenly be about this person or this place, I go, no, I can't because that this is what I'm writing. It may not be the most brilliant idea in the world, but this is what I'm doing. And it's all just about just making yourself focus in uh, and sit down and do it. And uh, yeah, the first draft doesn't have to be the inspired one. It really doesn't, <laughs> which I did not know when I was at school. I thought you had to start and write the perfect thing and then give it in and that was it. Um, it's only much later that I've learned the value of, of editing. 
I have to say, I'm slightly concerned that you've got an indefinite number of ideas about murder and how to murder people and what methods to use. Oh, I really do. <laughs> I read a lot of crime fiction. I watch a lot of um, mystery films and TV shows. Um, I would never do it in real life, obviously, but all those ideas are swirling around in my head from all the research I'm doing, just you know, living my life and, and watching and reading things I enjoy. Okay, so that is now officially on the recording. You would mm -hmm. never do it in real never life. Ever, and I especially say this to my family who get very anxious, <laughs> uh, but no, in, in real life, I wouldn't do it. So do you remember the first thing that you wrote way back when, when you were at school that you, you did feel proud of? So the first thing I wrote, um, it's a bit of a bit of a weird answer to this. Um, I was about sort of two or three. Two or and three? Yes. I, I'm, and I wasn't a prodigy. I couldn't <laughs> write. But um, the thing is, my father wrote, and I watched him write when I was very young. He wrote um, legal history nonfiction texts. And Which so is, I is saw, when you're two or three, yeah. very much. What but you it was just reading. writing, you know. And, and he would scribble. He had very scribbly handwriting. And then it would come back and it would be typed up. And I thought that what you did was you got a pen and you scribbled on a piece of paper and it, and it was sort of a telepathic thing and it went down your hand into oh. onto the page and then somebody would look at the page and they'd be able to read what you wrote. I didn't know you actually had to be able to read and write. And so we were at, I think it was a wedding and I had this beautiful dress on and my mom gave me like a um, marker pen and I went off with a piece of paper and I scribbled and I went, I went all over my dress and all over my face <laughs> and the page and then I gave this piece of paper to her and I was like, I've written you a story. Um, and my mum couldn't read it. And I suddenly realised that it wasn't just, you know, telepathy. You had to actually learn this skill before you could transmit your stories onto a piece of paper. But, you know, the writing impulse, the storytelling impulse was there from the earliest age. I always knew that I wanted to be a storyteller when I grew up. I'm just trying to work out if I might have tried to read it, but I think that probably would have been beyond me, especially at a wedding. Yeah, well, no, and my, I, my mom was like, what is this? I was like, it's a story about Peter Rabbit. And she just she just had nothing. <laughs> it was very upsetting. Okay, everyone always asks authors this, so I think it's my job. I think I'd be in trouble if I didn't. Who were who your influences? Um, I mean, probably it's a bit obvious from what I write, um, but I would say that Agatha Christie is my biggest one. Just the way she plots, uh, the way she sets up sort of character, the way she has tension and twists and turns and shock endings. You know, she is my um, main inspiration. Also, I think probably writers like Ina Blyton and um, some American crime um, series, Encyclopedia Brown and Nancy Drew. I read them when I was younger. Um, also, authors of fantasy fiction like um, Dinah Wynne-Jones and Eva Ibbotson and Terry Pratchett. Uh, so sort of every author that I read and I loved has sort of come into my writing in some way, even if they weren't like, obviously murder mystery authors. Oh, those are all on my favorites list too, I have to say. Now, something I really wanted to talk to you about is planning a plot, because I do think that's one of the trickiest things when you're faced with a blank page taking all those ideas we talked about earlier and, and then working out what to keep and, and what to leave and getting it all in order and I think that must be especially important with a detective story so how do you do it? So I used to be one of those kids who would start off um, with a great idea I'd write three chapters and then I'd get bored. Oh me too. Yeah. Because, not because it wasn't a good story, but because I hadn't planned it. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew about these characters in this world. Um, and so what I've had to learn as I've been writing the series, and I sort of murder most unladylike, I kind of did it almost 
by mistake. I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. And I sort of put it together, cobbled it together. But from Arsenic for Tea onwards, I've really learned a very sort of structured plotting um, device um, in which I really work on the crime, basically. And for me, um, the lovely thing about crime fiction murder mysteries is that there are such set plots in every single murder mystery uh you have to have a setting the crime uh the victim suspect one of whom will be the murderer uh some clues and then finally the big resolution at the end and you know that every single murder mystery mystery story has to have those in them so when i am planning my story I write down the answers to those things. I write down where the setting's going to be, what the crime is, who um, is murdered, um, who else is there, what clues there are that might lead to the murder, and then finally how it's going to resolve. And once I've done that, I focus in a bit more on the crime. I write down um, everything about it in sort of five-minute intervals, where everybody is, what they're doing, what their alibis are, um, what happens at the moment of the murder. And I write that down very, very carefully. Um, And only then will I begin to write. So I've done a quite a sort of basic plan for the whole structure of the book. I've written down, and we know there has to be a crime and and it has to be solved. Um, And then I go very in depth on the crime, but everything else I sort of leave up to chance and fun. Uh, So yeah, so I plan my crime very carefully. And then I sort of just um, block out the main beats of the story after that. So I don't get confused. Again, I think the young people listening to this are going to find this very encouraging because they will be used to being given story structures and templates and plans. And again, to know that you are still doing that and you need to do that when you're writing these books. It, it makes it all make sense. You need to do it, but I think you need to know what works for you. And this is what works for me. I have some friends who write out, beautifully write out every single scene. I have friends who write down one word and go. So it really is what works for you. But for me, I do need a bare, a sort of backbone plan. And I do need a very careful plan of the actual crime itself. And do you ever completely change your plan halfway through? No, I don't. And that is a rule I set myself, partly so I just don't... Um, get completely confused. Um, sometimes I'll be halfway through it and think, oh, I wish I could change the murder. I wish I could change uh, the crime. And I might tweak a little bit, but only once have I ever changed who the murderer was. And that's because I realized that, um, I realized that I'd actually already done that twist. <laughs> so can you, tell, like, us? Oh, no, can you no. tell us who you let off the hook? I can't, oh. I can't because it, it is a upcoming book um, that I, I changed who the murderer was. Um, it actually wasn't a very big change. It didn't, it just made the story, I think even better. Um, but no, I, I really don't change uh, the details of the crime once I've written them down. It, it helps sort of focus my mind, I think. And do you always write in order? Do you always write the first scene first and the last scene last? I do. And again, I don't, that isn't universal. Um, I always go from A to Z. I start off with Hazel's, you know, first words and I end up with, and that was how we solved the murder. Um, but I have I have friends who write like their favorite scene first or the end first. But I think because of the sort of story I'm writing, it's a very linear story. It's there was a murder and then they solved it and you have to go from beginning to end. And I suppose if there's a moral to take away from that, it's with a bit of planning, a bit of structure, you can allow yourself some freedom while yeah. you're writing. And I, I think so. I think I would really struggle to do a very, very meticulous plan because I think part of writing the first draft, the fun part of writing the first draft is wondering how they're going to get out of this one. You know, 
writing them into a corner and thinking, how are they going to be smart enough to get out of this? Um, and and that is a joy. I think if I knew what they were going to do at every single chapter, I would be so bored. Um, <laughs> so yes, it, it's sort of, I know the murder, but I have to discover how they respond to it, how they solved it. Okay. Well, Robin, I would really like us to take a closer look at some of your writing, if we may. So let's take a short break and then start turning some pages. Okay, so Robin Stevens, we are here at the headquarters of Puffin, who publish your Murder Most Unladylike series, and it's all very exciting. We had to just stop the recording because your editor just came in and was talking to you about redrafts of the ninth and final book in the series, which is coming out when? It's coming out on the 6th of August this year in the UK and Ireland. Uh and yeah, she said she liked it, which is really exciting. Uh, it's gotten much better since the first draft. How many drafts has it been through? Uh, this is the second draft. The first draft was that sort of ugly skeleton draft that just didn't make much sense. And this is the draft that is, I think, getting close to what I want the book to say, which is very exciting. And what does it feel like when the editor comes in and, and essentially gives you the thumbs up for the draft? It feels like you've done your homework really well <laughs> and they've given you like a star. It's yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great feeling. Okay, well, I have come along with my copy of your first book in this series, Murder Most Unladylike, which I loved when I read it back in 2014 when it came out. I was a huge Agatha Christie fan when I was younger. I loved the the tightness of the plots, the balancing of the characters and the huge satisfaction of a, a resolution that made sense and, and all the clues being pulled together. Um, would you perhaps read a little bit? Of the book for us. I would. Uh, so uh, this is page 77 of Murder Most Unladylike and this is all about ruling out Mr. McLean. In Div we found another alibi. Mr. McLean who we had seen lurking so promisingly next to the gym on Monday evening certainly looks a bit like a murderer. He wears filthy egg-stained jackets, his hair is greasy and in prayers he leers at us over the lectern. It would have been very easy and satisfying if he had been Miss Bell's killer, but it was not to be. Mr. McLean began telling us all about the confirmation training we would be taking next year when we got into the fourth form. The girls enjoy it so, he said, beaming at us with his nasty yellow teeth. Why, the class I took on Monday was so fascinating that we managed to overrun by nearly half an hour. In the end, I had to tell them to hurry so as not to be late for dinner. If that was true, it gave Mr. McLean an alibi for the time of the murder. When we got back up to house for lunch, Daisy made inquiries, and Mr. McLean's impossibly perfect alibi turned out to be entirely true. He had let his class out at 5.45, which meant that he would not have been able to go to the gym, murder Miss Bell, and be back in library corridor talking to Mamselle and Miss Tennyson by the time we saw him there on Monday evening. Daisy and I looked at each other in amazement we had managed to get rid of two suspects in one morning. It was time to update my suspect list. Thank you so much. Thank That's you. a really exciting bit of the plot. I, I kind of don't want you to stop. <laughs> um, so can you remember writing that? That was a long time ago. I I cannot remember writing that <laughs> precise part. I do remember thinking about Mr. McLean. I remember um, knowing how 
I wanted to rule him out. Um, I think probably I worked that out sort of the second draft again. You know, I knew he needed to be ruled out, but but why? Oh, um, it's the confirmation classes. Um, but no, I don't remember writing that precise part. And that's kind of one of the nice parts of looking back at old books that I've written. Um, when you almost, I almost get to read like a reader instead of reading like a writer. Um, I, I sort of forget that I'm the person who wrote that. And I'm like, oh, that, that was quite good, actually. <laughs> so if you were the reader and you had that extract in front of you, what do you think makes it an effective piece of writing? Um, because for me, I think it's, it's about the, the character. Yeah, I think I think it brings Mr. McLean so clearly into your mind's eye. And it I think I hope it should sort of begin by making the reader think, oh, he's very suspicious, he's um he's a strange man. And then in the way that I like to do it, it sort of flips it on its head and says, No, the person who looks suspicious isn't the murderer at all. And it's always the person who is least likely, unless it's the person who's most likely. And Hazel's language is so carefully chosen, I think. Um, the, the first verb that she uses about him is lurking. He's not standing. He's not strolling. He's lurking. He's lurking. But but that reminds like it's it's how I thought of adults when I was a child. They're all all a bit suspicious. Who knows what they're doing? <laughs> they're all just hanging around being adults. And I thought that was very strange. Um, so yes, Hazel's language kind of reflects my general feeling about grown-ups when I was her age. And then later he starts leering over the lectern. We've got a bit of alliteration going on here. Do you yes. think that happened on purpose? I think it probably did. I love the sound of language. I love putting words together that sound right. Um, and when I'm reading through my my books, I'll be sort of reading it out in my head and hearing how it sounds, um, how the sentences sound together, all the words together. Um, I know some authors who read out their whole book every time they edit it, which seems like a really long process to me. Um, but I think it's actually a really smart thing to do. And it's probably something that um, I would benefit from because every time I read out a passage, I can just see maybe one word that I say, oh, I wish I'd flipped that around or I wish that I'd used a different one but in general um yes I I enjoy things like alliteration I think that's what I like so much about your writing is that you you don't waste words it's all it's very direct and, and elegant and it says what you want to say really effectively you well you can't mess around with a with a crime novel um <laughs> my books are 60,000 words long about 60 to 65,000 and um there's a lot of plot to pack in. And so I have to sort of set myself the rule, the test of every single scene, something should happen that is important to the plot. And if it doesn't, there has to be a really good reason why that is there or it just has to go. Um, because if it's not advancing the plot, it, it's they're just dead words. They, even if they're beautiful, they have to go. And this is a really good extract to illustrate that because the very next thing that happens in the book is we see Hazel's notebook yes. and her suspect list yes. and she gets to cross somebody else she off, does. which makes me think back to what we were talking about earlier about plotting and planning. How do those kind of devices fit into your plotting and planning? Yeah, I mean, I plan very logically. Um, when I'm making my big, I make a big spreadsheet with all of the suspects, what they're doing in five minute intervals and, you know, their alibis and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, who the murder is and, and when the murder happens. So because I make that up very logically, um, I love the process of going through the book and crossing things out, you know, getting rid of suspects logically. And so what I do when I write the book really mirrors what Daisy and Hazel are doing as they're trying to uncover the truth. Um, and yeah, it's very helpful for me to have suspect lists because I can see as I'm writing the book, we only have three more suspects left. Oh, we have six suspects. This person needs to go. Um, so yeah, I kind of am doing a, a Daisy and Hazel as I'm writing. 
And of course, you do have an editor, as we I spoke do. about yes. earlier on, and children listening to this podcast, yeah. the young people in the classroom, they don't have an editor. They, they need to be their own editor. They do. But I would say that um, my best advice for somebody who, because I didn't used to have an editor, um, and it, it's much harder because you don't have somebody telling you, you know, sort of, this is good, but it could be better if. That's what an editor does. They read your your stories through and they say, these two characters seem very similar. What if you combine them into one character? Or this scene, nothing happens. What if you took it out? They, they ask questions to help you make the books better. But, you know, even if kids don't have a professional editor, um, they can use people like friends and family. Um, let them read it, say, what did you think? And um, even when I didn't have an editor, I gave it to my mom and my mom would say, I didn't understand the bit with the wolf. And I, you know, I would go, <laughs> mother, uh, but I'd go back in and, and sort of change it. So you can use the people, you know, people around you probably don't choose somebody that you care about so much that if they were mean about it, it would sort of break <laughs> your heart. Um, my husband doesn't read the books until they're published. Um, but, uh, do you think he'd be mean about them? I just think we don't need to bring that to our relationship. <laughs> but no, he re always reads them when they're, when they're done. But I can't be in the house. So it's when I go traveling, he reads them because apparently I watch him while he's reading. I stare at him. But yeah, so, so use, your, use your friends, use people you know, use other writers, um, and you can feed back on each other's work. And that is very helpful, I think. That's great advice, Robin. And actually, we've put together some classroom activities based on Murder Most Unladylike, so the young people listening can have a go at creating their own detectives and planning their own murder mystery. They're completely free to download. Um, teachers, go and take a look at the website, plazoom.com. So, Robin Stevens, we are coming towards the publication of the ninth and, you claim, final book yes. in the Murder Most Unladylike series, but we know that that's not always the case. Oh, you'll have to wait and see. I would say that it is the ninth and final full-length murder mystery of this series. Okay. So, as an author, obviously your job is to put words on the page and to tell these stories, but do you ever have days where you just think I, I'm just I can't write another word I've, I've just not got any words in me I well I do to some extent um I have days where I feel like I don't have much inspiration I have some days where I can just see the next um scene and I'm desperate to sit down and write and the words flow out of me and then days when the scene isn't working and I'm just sort of plugging away and I do think it's important for me to keep going on days that I don't feel wildly inspired because a lot of writing is getting the words out, and then you can go back and make them better later. Not writing anything on, on writing days is the biggest problem. Um, but I do have days that I don't write at all. I think it was Ray Bradbury said, write every day, which I think is a really, um, has been taken quite dangerously by a lot of people. And they think that if they don't write every single day, they are not an author. Um, but I, ha I take weekends off. Um, I take um, time off where I'm not doing any writing. I'm just reading or I'm just watching TV or I'm just like staring blankly at a wall. And that is actually really good for me as a writer. I need breaks. I need time off. I can't be pushing and pushing and pushing all the time. Um, so it's all about I think looking after yourself as well as writing a lot of words. Yeah, and it, it probably sounds obvious, but surely the, the only thing you need to be a writer is, is to write. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how you do it, doesn't matter where you do it, doesn't matter how much of it you do every day. I know I have 
friends who write, you know, 500 words or, or 50 words a day and, and friends who write 5,000 words a day. And they're all writers, you know, it, it just, it's just matters what you put down, not how you do it. That said, you are a writer who has a string of published books to your name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that I think we can say is your job. Yes. So what's the best bit about your job? I think almost all of it, really. There are just so many best bits. You know, I get to make up stories in my head and then put them down on the page and then people believe in them. Um, you know, seeing people who are dressing up as, as Daisy and Hazel or people who say, I am just like Daisy or I'm just like Hazel. You know, to them, those characters are real. And that is absolutely incredible. Um just getting to play with words all day is great. Um, getting to go out there and visit schools, visit kids, talk to kids, do signings, um, hear from fans. Like, it's all amazing. There are days when, you know, the words aren't coming right. And I just feel like you know, I'm a total failure of writer and I'll never write again and I'm terrible. Um, but then the next day I wake up and I'm like, oh, no, it's it's not so bad. It's going to be okay. Um, no, it's it really is, I think, the best job in the whole world. And are there any bits that you could do without? Um. I would love to be able to just like wall myself off and sit for a whole month and just do nothing but write. Um, but I do have to do real life things as well, like make dinner. Um, and that's really annoying. You know, I'm in the flow and then that I realize it's 530. Fair. I know. Um, but it's probably good, good for me, really. <laughs> it keeps me gra a grounded human being. And I think part of writing is knowing what it's like to be a person. <laughs> and so if I wasn't doing that, I probably wouldn't be a very good writer. Well, I think there will be young people listening to this who might have dreams of being a writer themselves one day. Um, any advice you could give them, any any tips to help them along that road would be really helpful. The good news is about writing that um, it's one of the cheapest and easiest things to get better at because all you need to do if you want to be published when you're older is be reading a lot of books, which you can get out from libraries and they're totally free, um, and then write a lot of stories, and which you can do you know, on a computer, you can do on a piece of paper, you can do it anywhere. Um, when you're writing, the one thing I would say is don't worry about um, writing something you think you should write. Just write a story you really like, even if it's quite a weird story. Like for me, writing murder <laughs> mysteries took me a long time to feel really confident about writing those sorts of books. Um, but it's my favorite kind of story. And that's obviously what I should be writing. So yeah, um, read a lot, write a lot and find your favorite story. Oh, you make it sound so simple. And you know what? Maybe it is. Robin, it has been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you for being our author in your classroom for this episode. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. It was great. And thanks too to everyone who's been listening at home, at school or anywhere else. Don't forget to check out the activities based on Murder Most Unladylike at Plazoom. And I hope to be invited back into your classroom with another fantastic author very soon. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week.
Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on Plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible, so please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.